Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Christina Hillsberg. She's a former spy with many years of service at the CIA. Her new book is License to Parent, How My Career as a Spy Helped Me Raise Resourceful, Self-Sufficient Kids, which provides both an inside look into one of the world's most clandestine organizations and a practical guide for how to utilize key spy tactics to teach kids important life skills. Christina and her husband, Ryan, live near Seattle, Washington, with their five children and two Rhodesian Ridgebacks. Welcome, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. How old are all these kids that you have? So our kids are ranging from three to 18. So we've got our oldest is going off to college in just a few weeks, which is wild. And then, yeah, we have as young as three. It's a full house around here, especially during pandemic. That gets thoughts and prayers from us. (laughs) Three to 18. (laughs) Thank you. That really is everything combined. You've got diapers and college applications. Well, I will say... Are you out of diapers, hopefully? Yeah, that was one of the pros to the pandemic is that I got to do body training while having nowhere to go. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's important. So, Christina, I want to start with how you became a spy, because it's one of these jobs that you know somebody does, but you don't think that you could do. It isn't something that you could decide to do. How did you choose this life for yourself? You know, it's funny you ask because it really was more of an accident than anything else. I went to college at Indiana University. I studied linguistics and Swahili and African studies. It was something that really interested me. I had no idea what I was going to do after college. I just knew I wanted to be in Africa. I thought, you know, I'd probably do the Peace Corps, do some sort of humanitarian aid organization. So it's like, how does someone with that plan end up at the CIA? But they actually recruited me off of my campus. They were looking for foreign language speakers. And as you can imagine, Swahili and Zulu are not languages they come across very often in America. And so that gave me a bit of a leg up. And I just fell into the interview and had a really fantastic experience with the recruiter when he was explaining to me that I would be able to analyze African politics and African leaders. You know, for our U.S. policymakers, I would write for our president. I would travel back and forth to the continent. And it sounded pretty exciting. You know, I'd never considered espionage before, and I didn't realize that there was you know, a part of it that was kind of more of this nerdy research side that really spoke to me. And so I fell into it. And then, of course, later on in my career, I did transition over to the operational side and did some more clandestine work, which means I was collecting intelligence, meeting with assets and collecting foreign intelligence of interest to the U.S. So I've done a little bit on both sides of the house. 
Now, our impression of spies is obviously pretty wacky, probably, to you, coming from mostly movies and TV shows. So what do people get wrong about what the life of a spy is like? Probably most things. You know, James Bond is probably the most terrible spy, <laughs> Jason Bourne, too. Although I do love watching a good Jason Bourne film or even Jack Ryan. They're very entertaining. But we like to say that if a spy is chasing someone or they're being chased or they've pulled out a gun, they've done something terribly wrong. <laughs> because espionage should really be done in the shadows. It should be happening right under the noses of foreign governments without them even realizing that it's there. And, you know, so yeah, what you see in the movies is very flashy and it's very entertaining and there's some very exciting you know gadgets and things like that of course you know at the agency but it's a little bit different from Hollywood for sure this book is full of fascinating because of course I like the James Bond stuff but I loved reading in the book about how these things were different and all sorts of you talk at one point about when you're being tailed by somebody, they might change their clothes, but they probably won't change their shoes. So you have to get good at what, looking yeah. at what shoes people are wearing. It's all kinds of stuff like that, that I just, I loved those, that level of detail. Yeah. There's a lot of really great operational stories, especially, you know, part one is mostly memoir of how I ended up at the CIA and how I met my husband there who worked on the clandestine side for most of his career. Well, all of his career. And then of course my journey into parenthood. So in part two, when I get into some of the these CIA principles that we use with our kids. My husband, Ryan, actually has, you know, these sidebars throughout that section of the book in each chapter where he tells stories with meeting with his assets, you know, from his operational training at the farm, the CIA's covert training facility that you do see depicted in some of these TV shows and movies. And so I think that gives it a really fun flavor. But really, you know, all of these principles there are real things that we did at the CIA, but there are real techniques that we really think are useful for kids to have. And so we've looked for ways to apply them to parenting in simple and straightforward manners so that really we can prepare our kids to be well-rounded and security conscious because the CIA really, you know, wants its officers to be prepared for anything the world throws at them when they're out there conducting espionage. They want them to be well-equipped. And we really want our kids to be well-equipped to be successful in the world as well. And so, so many of these techniques can translate into helping our kids be successful. Now, how did you first see that as a parent? I wouldn't think necessarily like CIA training and parenting have a lot. I would think those Venn diagrams are just two separate circles. Right. But what even gave you this concept? I love that you said Venn diagram because that is totally how I've used to see it. And I describe it like that a lot because I thought of like, here's my life, you know, over here at the CIA. And then I became a parent and they're like these two separate spheres. But really there is so much overlap. And it wasn't until I had observed the way my husband was parenting. So he had three kids when we met and they were six, eight and nine. And he was already using some of these principles. And I remember I was kind of skeptical at first because I had viewed these as, you know, different parts of my life. And I had always thought I would be more of a helicopter type parent. I was a lot more anxious than he was. You know, of course, I was on coming from the analytic side. I was someone who's more data driven, more kind of black and white the way I viewed the world. Whereas my husband is much more kind of suave, lives in the gray, you know, like a true spy, I suppose. <laughs> and, you know, he was using some of these principles. And I noticed that he gave his kids so much autonomy 
autonomy, but he also, you know, just kind of gave them this independence. They were making purchases in the store by themselves. They were all able to ride a motorcycle at those ages. They were shooting bow and arrow. They were just really interesting kids. So well-rounded. And that's one of the key qualities that we emphasize throughout the book. It's this idea of being well-rounded because when you're conducting espionage, you're building relationships with other people with an ultimate goal of getting them to, you know, agree to a clandestine relationship with the CIA, right? So you need to build trust with them. And one of the best ways to build trust is to build rapport through common interests. And so CIA officers often want to be very multifaceted so that they can build these relationships with people. And so that's a concept that we've adapted with our kids. And that was one of the things that I noticed right off the bat with Ryan's kids when we were dating was that they were so multifaceted. And they, I mean, they were more interesting than I was. And I was nearly 30 years old. And I was like, oh my goodness, these kids have all these hobbies. They're incredible. And so I knew he was doing something right. You might think from the outside that teaching kids, you know, to ride motorcycles and shoot bows and arrows and being, you know, ready for any outcomes that that would create kids who were constantly sort of looking over their shoulder, who were fearful, or who lived in a reality where something really bad is going to happen all the time. But in practice, you have found that's actually the opposite is true. Exactly. So yeah, it does the opposite. It's not raising them to be paranoid, thinking that there's danger lurking around every corner. You know, instead, we're preparing them to go out in the world by introducing these ideas in a very organic, adventurous, and fun way over time. And so when these skills are, you know, introduced step by step and not in a vacuum, it's actually more empowering than intimidating. And you find that your kids are more capable than you thought. And you become less anxious and you realize that your kids are ready for these things because you're building upon each one one at a time. We actually think statistically the chances of them encountering one of these dangerous situations is very low. But the idea is just like the CIA trains its officers for worst case scenario, we do the same for our kids in a very fun, organic way so that anything they encounter in the world is going to be much easier and they're ready for it and it's no big deal. We've kind of eliminated a lot of this stuff from our day-to-day lives as modern people in a very specific kind of a way. And I find that letting my kid use an axe or or shoot a bow and arrow, or stay outside for seven days, even though they get horrible bug bites. My instinct is like, if you get a bug bite, come inside. You don't want to get more. What happens when you move through some of these things is more interesting than I think what my instinct tends to be, which is let's spare you the thought or the practice of any of those things. Yeah, I think that's what comes naturally to me as well. And I'm very transparent about the fact that this is not a parenting style that comes naturally to me, you know, giving this autonomy. And we talk also about like giving our kids room to fail. I'm naturally, yeah, wanting to bring them in. Oh, there's bugs out there. Let's get inside. That is what feels comfortable to me. And so I think what's great is that as readers are going through Licensed to Parent, they're seeing it through my eyes and how I've kind of come around to a lot of these techniques that Ryan has used. And I'm also really open when we don't agree because, you know, that's how marriage works and parenting, you know, with a partner, you're not always going to see eye to eye. And, you know, you got to call each other out on those. You're things. saying you sometimes don't agree with your spouse. Oh my. <laughs> I know it's crazy, right? <laughs> Shocking news. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to get into these skills that you've taught your kids and talk about how we can teach them to ours. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. 
Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. (laughs) But all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Okay, so one of the chief tenets of CIA field training, at least I understand this now from having read the book, is getting off the X. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So getting off the X is this idea that the CIA teaches and the X means danger. It can be anything, a person, a place, an environment, anywhere the danger rears its ugly head and you need to get out. And so we raise this in the book because people do have a tendency to have that curiosity of wanting to get closer. And Ryan, my husband, tells a great story in the book of training where he's moving closer to the X to kind of check it out and it doesn't go the way that it was supposed to. And you know, you can have that tendency to want to move closer or also you can freeze. And so we introduce this idea with our kids early on so that they understand that when there's danger, the most important thing is to get off the X and move. And that doesn't mean, you know, running away in a cowardly way. It just means that understanding the concept that the longer you stay on the X, the more likely it is that you'll be harmed. So you hear of these scenarios of, you know, people hiding or people playing dead. You know, that's a last case scenario. That's a last resort. You want to get out of there. So we talk to them about listening to their gut. And there are a few different ways that we do this in our house. We are a big movie family. I think that's one of the things that we missed the most during the pandemic was going to the movie theater. And so we use movies a lot to illustrate these points. You know, I talk about using Finding Nemo for younger kids. There's a great scene where Dory and Marlon go through the trench, you know, something and, you know, Dory had a feeling they shouldn't go through the trench, but couldn't put her finger on it. Of course, it was her short term memory, you know, but then they end up going through these jellyfish. And so it's a great sort of illustration to talk, start talking to your kids about 
about this idea of listening to their gut. And then, of course, we use more mature movies like Taken with our older kids. And so there are a lot of different options for families to start to teach this concept of listening to your gut. But we also talk about visualizing escape routes, training your kids when you get somewhere to just kind of get a lay of the land, not in a scary or paranoid way, but just sort of understanding when you're somewhere, where are the exits? Where would I leave if I had to? But then also this idea of listening to alarms and warning signals. We want our kids to understand that if there's an alarm or a warning signal, they need to respond with a sense of urgency, even if they think it's a drill. And it doesn't mean that they have to be over the top and you know plow people over to get out. But we want them to take it seriously and not look around to see what everyone else is doing to just respond with that urgency. Lastly, I'll say that we also talk to them about this idea of sometimes ignoring authority figures, particularly in emergency scenarios. Just because someone is an authority figure doesn't mean they know the right thing to do. And the example I give in the book is the 2014 Korean ferry boat disaster. The voice over the intercom was telling them to stay put in their rooms. The ones who didn't listen to that voice of authority are the ones who survived. And so really, you know, that gets to this idea of critical thinking, which is woven throughout all of CIA training. And really, we've tried to hammer home throughout this book and all of these principles is this idea to teaching your kids to think critically. These have applications for peer pressure situations. You get those alarm bells when kids are misbehaving in a way that makes you uncomfortable. An exit strategy from that may play out a lot more often than a spectacular disaster. Yes. And we talk about that as well in the book. Maybe it's a party that your kids are considering going to and, you know, having that discussion with your kids beforehand. Do you have some sort of word that they'll use or some sort of agreement if they call you and they need to get out somewhere that you're going to come get them? No questions asked. You know, having those conversations with your kids because, yeah, there are much more practical scenarios. The X can be anything. It can be a party. It can be a person. It can be, you know, it doesn't need to be. You're exactly right. These sort of catastrophic scenarios. And we hope that they won't be. I want to talk about the idea of, you know, getting off the X might mean for our kids offending somebody, not listening to an authority figure, right? And that you talk in the book about how you sort of explain to your kids that that will be okay with you if they're doing that in the service of getting off the X, so to speak. And I feel like for girls, this is even more important training than for boys that we can go with our gut and not worry about being nice. I mean, maybe I'm watching too many episodes of the Ted Bundy true crime documentary on Amazon Prime. I mean, it's a long time ago and it's not a long time ago of the survivors of that being like, I, you know, I was trying to help him and I wanted to be nice, but I just had this feeling, right? And it was the ones who honored that feeling and ran and screamed and whatever. Some of them got to survive. And I feel like that's a really important lesson, especially for girls. (laughs) But is it hard to do that and then not have like a fourth grader who talks back to the principal all the time? How do you find that fine line? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I want to go back to what you said about girls because I absolutely agree. And, and one of the stories that I share in the book, it was an experience of me getting off the X at the park with my two youngest kids. And what had immediately happened, this shady character was circling us at the park. And I felt in my gut that this was, you know, someone with malintentions. I needed to get out of there quick. Thankfully, got my kids out of there quickly. And I delayed calling the police because I had this whole, oh, you know, we're fine. I'm not going to call the police and be in a position. 
position. They're just going to think I'm like a harebrained woman overreacting. I'm sure it's nothing. And then eventually when I did call, he said, well, gosh, I wish you would have called sooner because, you know, I've had several calls about this person and I was just there and I questioned him and there were several concerns and I wish I had this information as well. I think as women and even young girls, we can be afraid to speak up. So I think this is absolutely important to emphasize with our daughters in those situations. But yeah, the other issue is how to introduce that nuance so you don't have kids, you know, just disrespectfully talking back. And so it's helping your kids to understand that there's a time and a place and that there's an appropriate way to question authority because it's not only in these emergency scenario situations. It might be a teacher who's teaching something as fact, but actually it's their opinion. And that does happen a lot nowadays. And I think, you know, assessing information has become more and more important. And we want our kids to have those abilities. We want them to, again, this comes back to that thinking critically, but teaching them to do it in a respectful way. And of course, this gets easier as your kids get older. Right. I have a three and a four-year-old. This is more of like an authoritarian regime at this point. You want a three-year-old to have a different relationship to authority than a 16-year-old because you do pretty much want a three year olds to be following what adults tell them. They don't have the critical thinking skills to get there. It evolves. Yeah, exactly. But it's funny because you can see even at a young age, which kids may be more prone to like following the rules. And so I think it makes it all the more important to start emphasizing that to the extent that we can. And then those critical thinking skills will evolve over time. Can we talk about how you might teach your kids not just to get off the X, but to find safety? Like I'm thinking about when my kids were little, we'd go, I don't know, to Disney World, somewhere where they were getting separated from me could be a thing that would happen. I would always tell them to find a a mom with kids because I felt like, okay, that's a clear marker. Like that's somebody who I would think would be trustworthy and who would make sure that they got their way back to me. I'm sure there are more subtle tells, reads, things we can teach kids along the way. What? How do you talk to your kids about that? That's a great plan. I love that. We talk about a family meeting spot in case of emergency, you know, it, and that's, you know, it can be our home, it can be a spot in town or something, having these conversations with our kids so that they know where would we go if there's an emergency. It's part of, I guess, the sort of the softer skills of powers of observation, right? Or not just about that knife looks sharp, but it's also like that lady looks nice. They're both important, I guess. Yeah. I think actually what it really comes down to is it's not necessarily like a tangible, you know, playbook of like, here's where you would go. Here's what you would do, right? It's more intangible in terms of teaching our kids things like learning how to improvise and emphasizing things early on, like being aware of their surroundings, learning landmarks so that they can find their way home, right? So if they're in a situation where they have to find their way home, if you've spent time, you know, making sure that your kids are paying attention on the ride home. You know, I remember when I learned how to drive, I don't think I knew how to go anywhere. I had just like blindly my whole childhood just ridden along for the ride and not paid attention. So it was really important to me that from the time my kids were babies, even well before they were talking back, saying things like, Oh, we're going to pass this farm with the cows on the right. Here we go. We're turning left. There's the statue and emphasizing things like that from an early stage. So it doesn't become, you know, if this specific situation happens, here's where you go, right? Because it's never going to be a specific thing, right? We don't know what's going to happen and they need to have the skills to improvise and come up with different solutions based on the scenario. And so when we teach them these improvising skills, like being aware of their surroundings, know their landmarks, know how to read a map, know what to do in technology fails, you know, different things like 
the directions, right? Looking at the sun, the stars, the wind, you know, and I give an example of our teenage daughters and how, you know, they were in a situation where they're being followed home one night. And, you know, this is something that we had never said specifically, you know, if you ever think you're being followed, duck into a gas station. We had never had that conversation, right? But we had had enough, you know, hypothetical. We also do a lot of role playing in our family situations that they decided, okay, we forgot our cell phones. These two men look like they're following us. Instead of walking all the way home on the dimly you know, lit path, we're going to divert and go over to this gas station, duck inside and ask to use the phone, right? So that's a perfect example of kids being able to think on their feet and make that decision based on just kind of all the situational awareness you've built them up with over the years. It's so important. I just was with my son the other night. He was driving. I have an 18-year-old and we were trying to get back into New York City and we kept getting diverted. It was one of these things. There was traffic to the bridge. So Google Maps put us on these local roads. But of course, then the cops like blocked off the local road. But Google Maps doesn't know that. So Google Maps keeps sending you around the block. It's the same mistake over and over again. And he was just like, oh, well, I guess I just have to do this. Like Michael Scott driving into the lake on the office, right? Yes. Told me to turn. So I turned. And so then I was like, okay, well, let's look at these two tall buildings that we're passing. We've definitely passed them coming this way. Now we're passing them coming this way. And I'm still saying this way and this way because I'm a dumb dumb with like, East and West too. But right, I started to be like, okay, the city's there. We've already passed them this way. I think we have to come. And all of a sudden I felt like this swashbuckling explorer. But yeah, we needed to start to use our wits to figure out how we were going to get out of this gridlock traffic. And it was a skill that he really didn't possess at all. And I possessed just a little more than barely. <laughs> just a little more than barely. <laughs> Wasn't great. We made it. I made it home. I love it. I made it home. I think that story is so relatable, though, for so many people, because we've all become so reliant on using our phones to get wherever we need to go. And so I love the idea of, you know, teaching our kids to study a paper map, to study a city. And I have to do that. I'm not someone who has this like innate sense of direction. My husband has it. My youngest son even has it. I don't know what it is, but I can't just go somewhere and walk a city and figure it out. So, and this goes back to my training at the CIA too, whereas when we were doing surveillance detection routes, you would get out a map and literally, you know, write out your route, you know, with a pencil on an old school map. And so for me, if I can study the map beforehand and memorize the streets, then I'm okay. But just kind of finding it out on the fly is really difficult for me. And so a lot of this is, you know, knowing your own strengths, knowing your kids' own strengths so that they have these skills and they can play to them. And we want to know our way around if we're in a city or a town or wherever we are, because we don't want to be a target of thieves. We don't want to be, you know, when you're in espionage, of course, you're wanting to look natural because you don't want to be followed, you know, by an intelligence service on the way to your asset meeting. So of course, you know, our purpose is different nowadays. But you know, it's never a good idea to be staring down at your cell phone in a city when you're lost, whether you're a kid or an adult, Mm. you know, you want to have your wits about you, you want to be, you know, aware of all of your surroundings. So it's teaching our kids, but also us to study maps beforehand so that we have an idea of where we're going so that we can be alert. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll dive a little bit deeper into the whys behind this. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health, and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. 
Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different Different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence Whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So I want to go back, Christina, to what you were saying earlier about, you know, there's a reason to do this stuff that goes beyond what if your kid is in a crumbling building, they'll know what to do. And obviously, we want our kid to know what to do in those situations. But it occurs to me as I was just telling that story about, you know, trying to get into New York City, I I immediately felt like I was in Apocalypse Now. And it was just, you know, it just was bad traffic on a Sunday night. But it felt scary. And the part that felt scary, I think, was like, I don't know how I'm going to get home. And Google Maps won't tell me, right? So, and the situation, maybe the key is that it make a situation like that feel less scary because I would have that training. It wasn't that situation was so scary in and of itself. It just was like, I felt like I didn't have agency because I didn't know how to approach it. Is it about giving kids agency? That's right. I think it gives them a confidence when they have this training. They don't then get that, you know, that anxious, like, what do I do? You know, it's this very confident, you know, feeling that they have that they can handle it and they can think through it. And I think as parents, particularly as parents like myself, who are more of the anxious variety, it helps me feel more comfortable letting them leave the house. You know, we have teenagers going out on their own. And, you know, of course, I feel like we had, I mean, hard in a lot of ways, but easy in terms of our teenagers haven't really been going a lot of over the past, you know, year plus. It's been easy to surveil them because they're just in their bedrooms 24 hours a day. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're like, they have places to go, you know, people to see. (laughs) But um, it gives you, you know, more of a confidence and a peace knowing that if they are in that situation, whether it's traffic or whether it's a disaster, you know, they have these skills and, you know, they have that confidence, you have that confidence and, you know, it's more of a recipe for success. I think that's right. And it goes so into this sort of being capable results in self-esteem. And that's sort of a missing factor that I think a lot of us struggle with is 
well, my kids need to be resilient, but at the same time, we don't want anything bad to ever happen to them. And so we end up kind of moving obstacles out of the way, not letting them get bug bites, not letting them ever be in dangerous situations. But then we're sort of like, but they don't seem to have a lot of confidence in themselves. And that does seem like a circle we can square at a certain point by saying, it's not so much that you're like, okay, when disaster strikes, here's exactly how you're going to survive using these kind of elite tactics. It's really about putting things in kids' paths that say to them, whatever comes, you're up to the challenge. Exactly. Yeah, I'd agree. You know, we want to protect our kids so much. And then in a lot of ways, we're doing them a disservice because we don't want them to get hurt. And so we're not giving them experiences, you know, opportunities to experience the world. Mm -hmm. And when they do have these experiences and when we let them fail, they learn from it. You know, the CIA trains, particularly on the clandestine side, expecting people to fail. And I will tell you that it's very uncomfortable when you're that person because you become the class example. (laughs) So Ryan, and I have both been in that scenario, but you will never make that mistake again. And you've learned from it. And I think that's so crucial for our kids as well. But I think the other part that Ryan and I try to do is if we know our kids are struggling in a certain area or they've had a failure in one area, we go to another area where we know they're going to have a win to help build their confidence. So for example, you know, last month, our four-year-old was doing a soccer camp and you know, he had a really tough experience. It was a really hard adjustment to going to a camp with a lot of kids after having not been around a lot of kids over the past year. And so that was a little rocky for him and for me. And so he was feeling kind of down and we saw it, but we made him kind of push through the week. But we decided to do something totally different at the end of the day one day and went out on the boat and gave him an opportunity to surf. And that was a win for him and that built confidence. And so it's kind of doing that balance of like, when you know you're letting your kid experience failure, is there some other area in their life that you know that they can have a win so that they can build on those tiny wins as well. You know, something that just occurs to me is the moment when we're sitting on the plane and, you know, you're about to push back from the gate and the flight attendants do the thing that absolutely nobody pays attention to, right? You're supposed to refer to the seat back card and nobody does. And they're showing you where the emergency exits are and nobody's looking, let alone telling their kids. Sometimes I do with my kids like, well, let's see. Oh, I think that exit's closer. Do you think this one or that one's closer? But what do you think it is? Is there something in human nature that just seems to me like a really clear example? Like on the small chance this plane crashes, here's what you need to know about this plane. And people are like, I am not going to look up from my iPad because this is stupid. It'll be fine. Like, what is it about us that makes us not want to plan? Yeah, that's such an interesting point. It's almost like, you know, if we ignore it, it's not going to happen to us kind of thing. I wonder if there's like, I'm sure there's like some psychological research to support that. Like the idea that people, you know, the concept of how people deal with death and tragedy, you know, it's this idea of it can't happen to me or I don't want to talk about it, you know, even though we all have the eventual reality of facing that. And so I think like in that scenario, yeah, it's like we just don't want to think that that could happen to us. And if we do think that, then that creates anxiety for people. And so, yeah, oftentimes people ignore it. And, you know, I think there's a balance. You don't have to, you know, be overly cautious about it and, you know, feel like the plane is going to go down. But I think having that awareness for where your exits are is absolutely important. But yeah, you know, that's so interesting. I bet there's some really fascinating data behind that. What do you do with your kids on a plane? Could they like give those speeches? Are they really aware? You know, I think we are a little bit more 
in the gray about it. Like, I don't think we mm-hmm. make them, you know, listen and follow along the safety card by any means, but we make sure that they're aware <laughs> of, you know, the exits. And I think it brings us to the sort of overall point of the book, this idea of like, well, doesn't it scare kids to tell them, you know, about bad things that could happen? And I think your point is that the teaching them to be prepared does the opposite of scaring them. That's right. And we use, you know, in this, in the chapter where we talk about being prepared for emergency scenarios, we talk about, you know, the fun ways that we introduce it with our kids, like the adventure bag that we give them when they're three. And that's essentially an emergency survival bag that evolves as they get older. And every adult should have one too. We call them go bags later. And obviously the content will change over time. But, you know, we sit down with our kids when they're three and we go through each and every item and we make it very exciting. You know, a flashlight is very exciting. Ooh, your very own flashlight. Ooh, your very own package of band-aids and kind of getting their (laughs) investment into, you know, this idea so that they're a part of it and they understand it. And they're taking that on and carrying it around on hikes and they're getting sort of this preparation mindset and it becomes fun for them. And also, I mean, I think something I noticed about Ryan from the beginning, even though they were sometimes talking about, you know, end of world scenarios and things that I thought were very scary. He had this way of using imagination with the kids that I think always made it really fun, you know? And so they'd have adventure bags and, you know, a hobbit cloak or, you know, and it's everything down to like the food that we eat. Oh, tonight we're eating hobbit food. I mean, you can basically put hobbit in front of anything and it makes it like very cool and exciting for kids. (laughs) Amy is big on marketing. She's always like, you got to market this stuff to the kids. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that there are ways to do it. you know, organically and fun so that it's empowering and not intimidating. And that's something that, you know, readers can experience through my eyes in the book, because that was exactly how I felt in the beginning. And now here I am, you know, with a four-year-old riding a motorcycle and, you know, life surprises you. (laughs) Wait, stop. Your four-year-old rides a motorcycle? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's so funny when I met Ryan and Lena, who's now 15, she was six at the time. She was writing one, you know, all of the bigs were, they were smalls at the time, but, and I just thought he was crazy. You know, I thought, who is this man? But I knew that he was like a very responsible dad. And, and I thought, okay, there's got to be some thought and logic behind this. And of course there was, and you know, it's multiple fold, you know, not because motorcycle training is something the CIA does, but it's, you know, it's this idea of emergencies. If there is gridlock, you know, think about any sort of post-apocalyptic movie, how do they get around traffic? It's motorcycles. It's really just about talking talking to your family and being prepared for scenarios. What will you do if you can't use your car? Do you have a bicycle? Do you have a scooter? Doesn't have to be a motorcycle. I feel so much more comfortable letting our son Ari do this because I've seen him evolve, you know, since he was very young. And I tried to be a little bit more in the gray and say whenever we feel like he's coordinated enough and capable and ready. And that ended up being just last month. I'm someone who was such an anxious person and a very anxious mom, you know, had a lot of postpartum anxiety and I would have never thought that I would be comfortable with it. But the thing is, he's so capable and he is confident and he's doing great. And, you know, the fear is never gone completely. And I think that's also something that's important to emphasize that I know I'm probably always going to be an anxious parent on some level, right? And I know that that's what comes naturally to me. But my hope is that by sharing some of these principles that other parents will find a way to give their kids, you know, a little bit more autonomy as well and that they can kind of enjoy watching their kids do more things than they thought that they could do before. Christina's book 
is called License to Parent, How My Career as a Spy Helped Me Raise Resourceful, Self-Sufficient Kids. This is a fascinating book, and thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking